For most Israelis, serving in the military is an integral part of growing up. But amongst the ultra-Orthodox community, conscription is sacrilege. It used to be a whole nation army. Now it's half a nation army. Something is very unfair that we are going to give our children to the army, not knowing if we are going to get them back. And 50% of the mothers in Israel do not have to worry because their children do not go to the army. Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. For those of you who may not know, we are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to examine global trends and how they're impacting real lives. Today I'm joined with Emma Ross, a second year foreign affairs and Russian language major. Hello, Emma. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Balthazar? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. Today we've got a great episode. We are going to do a kind of an overview of mandatory military service across the world, how it works, where it works, where it doesn't. And Emma, if you just want to jump right in. All right. So today I'm going to be talking a bit about mandatory military service. There are currently 26 countries which have some form of forced conscription. I'm going to be looking into both the pros and cons, the reasons why this may or may not be necessary, but also look into the complexities and potential problems with mandatory military service. I'll first be looking into the reasons why a country would decide to institute such a policy. You know, from at least my point of view, I don't think I would appreciate it much if I was uh, conscripted into the military kind of against my will. How, how did this come to be in so many places, and does it infringe on those personal liberties, and do countries really need this service? Yeah, so your point of view is one shared by many, and that's why in a lot of countries you see protests and a problem with evasion of the draft. When a country chooses to make a decision to move into forced conscription, it is usually because there is some sort of imminent threat. Uh, example of a few countries that do have mandatory military service include Israel, Belarus, Austria, Norway, South Korea, and Turkey. So with a couple of these, such as Israel and South Korea, they share a border with someone who may be perceived as dangerous or they may have ongoing threats. You know, countries such as the U.S. or some more Western European countries, we have enough voluntary recruits that we don't need mandatory institution of something like a draft. But somewhere like South Korea that shares a border with not necessarily an imminent threat, but there may be some sort of threat there. A country like South Korea would want to institute a compulsory draft because there is an imminent threat there. Some other arguments for why compulsory military service is a positive thing. Some people say it increases a shared national identity. People come together more. In the U.S., when we had the draft, people say it would be more of a melting pot where you get closer with people who you didn't grow up with. So you'd get a better cultural sense of people from all across your country if you're from a diverse background. And this is true of countries that institute the draft now. Other arguments for why this is a positive thing is, you know, if we have a bunch of politicians who have never served in the military, but they're the ones making the decisions on whether or not we'll move into war, some people would like decision makers to have real world experience with what it is they're pushing for through policy. Right. It makes sense to have a firsthand experience and uh, you know, what you're directly affecting. Right. And in America, only 7.3 of living Americans have served in the military. So people are afraid that there is a dissociation with what that actually entails. This statistic is according to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So instituting a draft in places with imminent threats can benefit national security. And people tend to be more accepting of a mandatory military service if they feel like they're needed. And it can inspire a sense of positive nationalism or a sense of cohesion. 
So this is a bit of the good side, but of course, we're talking about it because it's something with a lot of complexity and it's something with a lot of nuance. And I think your comments about how personally you wouldn't like to be drafted, and neither would I, frankly, I'm very small and weak. Uh, it's a very intuitive observation that may have a bunch of benefits, but realistically, not everyone is cut out for mandatory military service. So uh, I can understand why a country might need or might think it needs um, mandatory military conscription, but what are some of the adverse effects that this might have? So of course, if you get the letter in your mailbox saying that you're being called for duty, your first reaction might be, this is unfair, I'm not cut out for this. Uh, And a quote that I found um, that's a very common sentiment is, it feels like this is a way that your state is forcibly extracting labor from you. It feels fundamentally unfair on an individual basis. Now you can look at, you know, the broader societal implications and it can have pros, but now we're going to look into some very real drawbacks of a system like this. The first really interesting sort of nuance of the system is who can opt out of it because you can have mandatory conscription, but not 100% of your population will serve. There will be people who are too sick to serve. Who have bone spurs. And there are also people who call themselves conscientious objectors. This is a very heated or controversial phrase because what constitutes a conscientious objector does not have a set definition. You know, almost anyone can claim to be a conscientious objector to get out of something, which is why allowing for such an easy opt-out is not ideal for countries that really do need a large manpower. So in states such as Israel or Russia, being a conscientious objector is not a valid reason for opting out of service. And people who do want to opt out on the grounds of conscientious objection, such as Quakers, pacifists, or Orthodox Jews, they may find themselves serving prison sentences because of their beliefs. Right. And I guess in in countries where you're not allowed to be a conscientious objector, there are other ways to get out of service. I had um, had a friend who I worked in the kitchen with, and he pretended to go completely crazy, kind of like a catch-22 situation. But it's almost more meaningful if you do become a conscientious objector in one of those countries where it's not allowed, but you kind of stick to your political guns. Right. And some countries like Norway will allow for some sort of civil service. You can be a civil servant as opposed to being a member of the armed forces to serve out your term, but some countries do not allow this. We've talked a little bit about people who don't want to serve, but how about the people who do serve? Like, What is the the main bulk of mandatorily conscripted armies? In the modern day, countries have had to decide who composes their army, specifically whether women should serve, Countries such as Norway and Israel have a long-standing tradition of both men and women serving, and also both of those countries are friendly to transgender people serving. However, South Korea and some other countries only have service for men. Some other variations for terms of service, because of course every country that adopts mandatory military service does not have the same format of what that entails. So some differences of what a country has to decide when they institute mandatory military service is composed of whether or not they're gonna allow women into the army, how long the service is gonna last, how much of the population will be drafted, how accessible opting out and leaving the services, and how they're gonna deal with evasion. So in researching this, were there any interesting case studies that kind of really jumped out at you? Definitely. So one of the countries that's most known for having mandatory military conscription is Israel. And during my research, I met with a professor here at the University of Virginia to 
learn more about what Israel's service specifically entails. So I met with Professor Sigil Boa. I've been a faculty member at UVA since fall 2011 in the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures. I'm also part of the Jewish Studies program and also affiliated faculty with the Center for German Studies. So I sat down with him to find out more about what Israel's service specifically entails. So how has mandatory military conscription been embedded into the culture of some of these countries? So the history of mandatory or compulsory military service in Israel goes all the way back to the very first days of the state in 1948, and even before that to the days of the pre-statehood and the so-called organizations. Both men and women served or and continue to serve both in the Israeli military and also before that in the pre-state organizations, there were men and women. I would not call it necessarily a phenomenon of gender equality. There is still some inequality of decreasing nature, but still it is there. There have been many steps taken in order to make things more equal, but generally speaking, both men and women serve currently, and historically this has often been the case. Men serve for three years and women for two years. In America, our picture of what the average life for, say, a middle-class person would be is we have high school, we graduate high school, we go into college, we graduate college, maybe get an internship, and then go into our career and live the rest of our lives. Hopefully get an internship. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, but the calculation is different with countries with mandatory conscription. Their picture of life is you go to high school, you finish high school, hopefully. The conscription is ages around 17 and 18 is when it starts. So that's when people will start having to go off to service. So you serve your term, two years if you're a woman, three years if you're a man generally. Maybe you'll go into the reserve. Then you come back from service, again, hopefully. And this is a very real situation where sometimes people don't come back from service. But hopefully you finish your service and you come back. It's common for people to work a couple temp jobs to save up to go backpacking for a trip before you come back, settle down, start your career, get married, move on with your life probably. So there are a couple more considerations for the average Israeli person and also I'm sure most countries with mandatory military conscription also have a similar picture of what life is going to be like. It's not just about how people perceive the military service, but also how it is represented in the media and beyond that, of course, in cinema, in poetry, literature, song lyrics, anything, art, uh, visual art, statues, anything, monuments, anything that one really could imagine. And one very particular thing there is that growing up in Israel, the military service, so to speak, is always in the back of one's mind, especially if one belongs in a group that is likely to serve in the military. And this constitutes different stages of life or different stages in one's coming of age, so to speak, than in some other countries. And one very telling example of that is the lyrics of a song by a rock band named Hachaverim Shel Natasha, Natasha's Friends, from um, a very classic uh, album of 1994. Uh, the name of the album is Radio Blah Blah, Radio Blah Blah, and uh, the name of that song is Autobiography. And the first part of the song really describes those stages, and um, it goes like that. Uh, like everyone, I went to kindergarten and I counted to 10, and then there was time to go to school. Uh, Dana woke up, Dana wide, like everyone. Then I'm 13, Mazel Tov, Bar Mitzvah. Then and then, for all of a sudden, military. Being a soldier is normal. Is being crazy a stupid thing? And for me, this last line that I just read 
is really about the tension between describing what is perceived as normal and describing that which is in the author's own heart, where for all of a sudden he realizes that what he feels really differs from what, what everyone else feels. So being a soldier, that is the normal thing, and being crazy, that is the stupid or unacceptable thing. There are many more examples. There are examples of film, for instance, Late Summer Blues, Blues La Chofesh Hagadol, that came out in 1987 and described events that took place 17 years before that, and also describes the last days before military conscription uh, within a group of uh, several close friends who live in Israel. A very interesting film indeed, and there are countless additional examples. So even though, as Professor Gilboa explains, this is an accepted and expected consideration in most people's lives, not everyone rolls over. There are protests sometimes, especially among groups that consider themselves pacifists. The numbers of people who do not serve in the military have actually grown in recent years for a host of reasons. But on the other hand, we see a lot of people who historically did not participate in military service, for instance, a lot of Orthodox Jews who nowadays do serve in the military in small numbers still, but these numbers are gradually growing. And interestingly enough, the last election that we saw uh, were triggered for the most part by the insistence of the party Israel Beitenu, Israel Our Home, that all Orthodox men and to an extent also women serve in, in the military like other citizens. So there are these two tensions that on the, on the one hand, it is no longer the melting pot it used to be or it allegedly used to be where everyone allegedly served on the one hand. But on the other hand, we see people from groups, from new groups who actually now participate in military service for a variety of reasons. Some of them are related to what the state wants and some of them is actually related to what they want and they some of them would see the service as a bridge into better integration in Israeli society. What Israel does not really offer and other countries do offer, for instance, Germany, Austria, is this form of a civilian service or what uh, in Germany is called Zivildienst, which existed in Germany until 2011 when conscription was suspended. And in Israel, if someone wants to serve, but not in a military way, it is very hard. It's doing something extra. Sometimes it entails some sort of uh, objection, either passive or active. And it's not a straightforward route from, let's say, high school to civilian service as much as it is from high school into military service. So you've been drafted. You're now in the military. What, what can you expect? The military, I think like most uh, militaries in the world, has modernized to a great extent. It's not always as modern as one wishes, but it still is much more modernized and much more streamlined than it used to be in the past. Nowadays, a lot of people actually find out what they will be doing uh, as part of the military service before they get drafted. So this, is, uh, this takes place in the screening process. And as opposed to many years ago when people only found out what they will be doing either on the first day or the first week or even beyond that. There are different branches within the military. There are field units, of course, but there are also other roles that are very interesting and sometimes very fulfilling. Some people say these roles resemble much more what we've mentioned before, like a civilian service. So there are educational service, of course, also administrative and social roles caring for the well-being of other soldiers for, and first and foremost soldiers who come from less privileged backgrounds. So all of these roles exist. The idea of uh, granular units is more prominent, I would say, in Israel than in other countries. And for instance, the United States, 
Many people, especially in field units, would go through basic training with a group of other soldiers, like a cohort, so to speak, and will continue to serve with these people or some of these people actually uh, till the end of their mandatory military service, so for all three years. So that is um, a very unique experience. The notion of deployment, on the other hand, does not really exist in Israel to the same extent that it exists in the United States. So after basic training, people don't get deployed to remote locations, remote bases, so to speak, where they will be spending the rest of their service, which does exist in the United States where people um, go through basic training or other forms of uh, training, uh, for instance, ROTC that we see here at uh, the University of Virginia, and then get assigned to serve on a certain base in a remote location. So as Professor Gilboa mentioned, the service here is really only about two to three years. And in my research, I found a quote that kind of resonated, which is, you know, once you get good at your job, once you're done with training, is when you're getting ready to go back home. So if you have a mandatory military service, your reserves are constantly almost new to their job, which is a problem that voluntary armies don't necessarily have. If you serve in a voluntary army, you're in there for a longer period of time and you have a longer period to put your skills to use. But actually being in the military, training can vary drastically. In another country, such as South Korea, if you go and serve, every man in South Korea has to serve for two years. Otherwise, you know, it's punishable by jail time. And in South Korea, there's five weeks of training. Training is often filled with some intimidation and scare. And in one example that I found during my research, they exposed trainees to uh, toxic gas with no long-term effects, but it was very painful. These people go through a lot for, what, two years usually of service. I mean, that's, that's kind of a heavy burden to bear. Right, and almost everyone is going through this, so that by the time you're thinking about going back home, you're just not the same. I believe that... Like in many other countries and many other stages in one's life, nobody really goes back to the life they had in high school to the same extent that uh, once people graduate from college in the United States, nobody really goes back to the life he or she had before. What people often do after they complete their military service is maybe work, save some money for their so-called big trip. That trip that also was mentioned in the song that I just translated, where, you know, there is military and then there is a big trip around the world. And after that, uh, you know, mommy's good boy discovers the drugs, uh, which was the next line in that uh, song that I just uh, translated for you. So these are the so-called stages in one's life. So after high school, there is military service. After military service, you work, you save money, then you travel the world, maybe do some, go through some experiments, and then you would go back to Israel or go, go elsewhere and possibly uh, university or other things. These are now the uh, formative experience that many Israelis, many young Israelis share. And there is almost this notion, if you're part of certain social circles, that everyone does this and then everyone does that. So everyone is in high school, everyone uh, gets their driver, driver's license, then everyone is in the military, then everyone is working, everyone is traveling, everyone is abroad backpacking, everyone is at the university, then everyone goes corporate or does something else. So yeah. Let's think big picture. How, how have these programs kind of really deeply impacted the cultures and the countries in which they're instituted? Yeah, that's a great question because it really does completely change the course 
of someone's life on the personal level and also it changes the culture of a country. You know, throughout my interview, Professor Gilboa constantly referenced how mandatory military service was impacted in, you know, cinema and in culture and it impacted the media and on a cultural basis growing up what you think your life is going to be like. You know, knowing that you're eventually going to have to serve in the military changes your calculus in planning out your life. And while it is a deeply flawed system because, you know, there are protests and people genuinely feel like, you know, holding a gun is not the best way to serve my country. Is there a better way to work those people into the existing system or maybe make the system more geared towards them? Yeah, so one solution and one sort of modernizing piece that's come up over and over again is having an alternative to armed service, which would be having a civil service option. And countries do that nowadays where you don't necessarily have to serve in the armed service. And it may still be flawed since you don't want everyone choosing that option if you do need a standing military because you face an imminent threat. But it's much better than throwing large amounts of your populace into prisons for objecting. And the question of mandatory military service is a very relevant one. I mean, we've seen how this question has impacted Israeli elections and the rise, as Professor Gilboa said, of the Israel Beitanyu party. A large reason of the popularity of that party was over the question of uh, whether everyone should serve. In the sense, there were large movements of Orthodox people who did not want to serve. So it impacted that election because they wanted a united front on the question. You know, overall, it leads to a creation of a completely different culture in countries which have mandatory service versus countries where the service does not exist. But it's a very important question to keep your eye on and considering how countries differ. Well, that's all we have for this week. Our next episode is our highly anticipated live episode. It will be taking place at the Miller Center uh, for Presidential Studies here on grounds check out our social media and stay up to date with us so you can find out the exact time and the exact topic it's going to be a great conversation between a few of our researchers and we're really excited here as always follow us like us subscribe all that jazz and we will see you next week